0: science story. Huh? Is NYU a scientist uh, they felt, the felt felt right. I was so and, and I just wow. thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side.
1: Hey everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week I have a cold. I'm so sorry. I know it's not my usual dulcet tones that you know and love, but please bear with me. We'll get through this together. And it'll be worth it because this week we're presenting two really wonderful stories about moments of truth or pivotal moments in our lives when everything suddenly comes together. Sometimes these moments involve profound epiphanies about the nature of the world around us and sometimes they involve animatronic dinosaur puppets. Sometimes a little of both, if we're lucky. Our first story today is from Raymond Carr. It was recorded in April 2018 at the Highland End Ballroom in Atlanta. The theme that night was shakeups. ups
0: uh, So in the summer of 2009, I found m- myself trying not to kill a man with a giant robot animatronic dinosaur puppet. Uh, it wasn't my fault. He was the one that jumped the guardrails and put himself in mortal danger. All right, let's take a step back. Uh, back to the beginning. Back to the beginning of life on this Earth. Back 6,000 years ago. <laughs> what? What? JK, y'all, I know that the life on Earth started around 3.6 billion years ago now. I'm totally cool with it now. You're welcome, science. I believe you. So I've been a professional puppeteer my entire life. And um, you know I've had the privilege of, as you said, working on some really cool shows. But uh, when I was 26 years old, uh, I got the opportunity of a lifetime. The fourth largest touring show in the world wanted me to join them. At the time, the largest touring shows were like The Rolling Stones and U2 and, and uh, Bruce Springsteen and a giant robot dinosaur puppet show. Uh, this was a big deal. I mean, the show traveled with 75 crew members and 25 semi-trucks and was, had a production budget of $20 million, and they flew their crew, i.e. me, uh, to a new city every week. Uh, and this is coming from me, who started out doing puppet shows for kids in churches, so it was a bit of a step up. Uh, and to be clear, this isn't like uh, it's a Small World, Hollow President-style animatronics. These were like sophisticated, uh, free-roaming creatures that were built by the same people that like, built the puppets for uh, Jurassic Park and Star Wars. Uh, each creature cost about a million dollars, weighed about a ton each, and were anatomically correct, so my Brachiosaurus was about 40 feet tall. Um, we operated them with three different puppeteers, one inside of the creature driving it around and one operating the facial features and the sounds of it and then one myself operating the body of the puppet using the sophisticated and highly sensitive anima- animatronic interface that kind of looked like a metallic spinal cord with a motorcycle handle at the end of it. <laughs> All of this was in service of educating and entertaining people about um, evolution of dinosaurs throughout the years. This was a very serious puppet show. But when I got the news, I was terrified of telling my parents. I mean, what would they think? What would their friends think? Despite their best efforts, their child believed in evolution. (laughs) See, both my parents are ordained ministers and I think the world of them, and I was homeschooled in a conservative Christian environment. Uh, This was a place where uh, we learned about creation science uh, through the lens that God created the earth 6,000 years ago in seven days, period. Now, pro tip, if you're ever debating somebody who believes in creation science, it's not that they don't believe in science, period. It's just that they see scientific information through a very narrow lens. And I'm going to be honest, it's like me as someone who believes in evolution now, it's kind of the same way. I mean, I don't really understand all of the details behind carbon dating, but I just go with it assuming that the earth is billions of years old. I act on it on faith. So for me, this was a big deal trying to inform them that I was going to do this. Uh, Okay, quick overview on what creation scientists believe about the explanation of dinosaurs. And to be clear, we didn't believe silly stuff like Jesus rode dinosaurs or (laughs) God put dinosaur bones under the earth to test us or stuff like that. (laughs) We believe seemingly well thought out uh, theories based on ancient biblical text. Okay, so bear with me. Uh, God created the earth in seven days. On the sixth day, God created all the land animals, including animals, uh, dinosaurs, and humans. All right, uh, at the time, there was a firmament or a layer of mo- moisture around the earth that basically blocked harmful radiation from the earth, thus causing animals to get larger and live for longer periods of time. Adam lived about 800 years, dinosaurs grew big and tall. Um, after a while, man became evil and junk and God decided to flood the earth. He did that by causing the moisture on the sky to come down to the earth. Moses built an, uh, I mean, Noah built an ark uh, and got all the animals onto the ark, including all the dinosaurs. Not every species of the, every dinosaur, but every kind of dinosaur, which could be narrowed down to about 50. He took all of the adolescents and babies onto the ark and thus surviving the flood. After the waters receded, this is how we get all of our fossils uh, in the ground. After the waters receded... Um, the dinosaurs came out and lived amongst humans for several generations, but since they didn't have the protection layer of the firmament around them, they died off after several generations, but not before man interacted with them, and that's how we get the explanation of the behemoth and the Leviathan in the Bible and dragon myths throughout the world. Get it? Got it? Good. All right. <laughs> and it was this pseudoscience that I was about to embark on uh, that, that I'd been taught my entire life that I was going in direct contradiction to what I was about to start doing. So it was a Saturday. I remember it was a Saturday because uh, we had three shows on Saturdays and I was exhausted. Uh, at the end of my time on this tour, I performed this production 800 times. But despite that, uh, the, the repetitive nature of live theater, I couldn't really phone it in. I had to pay attention every time because with my animatronic interface, I operated about 100 yards away, and and we performed in giant arenas like Madison Square Gardens and the Staples Center and the Phillips Arena. So uh, if I moved the wrong way or missed the cue, I could send my 40-foot-tall Brack into the audience or into another crew person. So I was very tired, and then I heard on the radio headset the stage manager go, oh my God, nobody move, nobody move! From a distance, very far away, I could see a tiny little man jump over the guardrail, run up to my dinosaur, and start to climb it to mount it. <laughs> At the time, the only other human character on stage was this uh, paleontologist who basically narrated your journey through prehistoric era. He was kind of this uh, Indiana Jones style, cross between a Broadway star and like an action hero. And so he took, uh, our, uh, the, the paleontologist took a moment in between his monologues, saw the renegade gate jumper and made a beeline straight for him. Our jackass hero was at a crossroads. <laughs> With security coming in from behind and an angry fake paleontologist coming in from the front <laughs> and a terrified animatronic puppeteer operating and trying not to hurt him a hundred yards away underneath him. He did the only thing he could do. He made a beeline for the exit, only to have security tackle him and put him in cuffs. After the moment, the paleontologists and true show-must-go-on fashion made a quick quip to the audience and continued on as if nothing happened. There's a certain kind of adrenaline that pumps through your body when you have to hold something so sensitive so firmly. (laughs) By the end of the show, I was exhausted. I don't remember much about what happened next. The uh, stage manager came and told us what little information she had about him. And uh, the one thing I do remember and probably will never forget is his explanation. When asked why he did what he did, all he said was, I just wanted to hug a dinosaur. (laughs) And you know what? I, I mean, I kind of understood where he was coming from. I mean... Bear with me now, but this was like his one chance to really get up close and personal with the with the real thing. Like, he could really embrace the thing that we've all loved for so long. All right, this is a bit of a stretch, but. When people homeschool their children, it's generally in the hopes that they're going to impart a specific worldview on their children for the rest of their lives. And for me to take this job, in a way, was an acknowledgement that my parents' sacrifices of homeschooling me were in vain. So, despite all that, I decided to take the metaphorical leap from my childhood over the guardrail into adulthood. (laughs) It was a bit dramatic, but you get what I'm saying. To their credit, my parents shocked me with how cool they were. They were not only supportive, but they were very encouraging. To this day, I don't really understand why, although in hindsight it probably the hefty paycheck probably helped to do with that. Um, but just like that, my parents evolved. Uh, <laughs> Science asks more questions than it provides answers. And it forces you to be okay with that. It's not reliant on one specific worldview or, or tradition. When we learn new information, we have to adapt and move forward. Even if that information is that our badass childhood heroes probably look more like giant chickens than dragons, we still have to deal with that fucking information. (laughs) Feathers on raptors? Come on, science! (sighs) But just like that gate jumper, science doesn't care. So you might as well hug it out.
1: was Raymond Carr. Raymond is a Jim Henson Company trained puppeteer who has been performing for more than 15 years. He has traveled to every major city in North America and parts of Europe working on multi-million dollar productions. Raymond is one of the main characters for the Jim Henson Company's new show Splash and Bubbles on PBS Kids and some of his other credits include Nick Jr.'s Lazy Town, Walking with Dinosaurs, the Arena Spectacular tour, and various projects for Cartoon Network and Adult Swim. Our next story today is from Wade Roush, It was recorded in April 2018 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at our show in conjunction with the Cambridge Science Festival.
2: It's May of 2016, and I'm in Florida at Kennedy Space Center with my whole extended family, including my niece, Lucy, who's seven, and my nephew, Kieran, who's 10. And we are there to witness the launch of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. And I'm pretty darn excited because I've never actually seen a space launch, a rocket launch, in person. But we have some time to kill before the launch, so I don't know if you've ever been to Kennedy Space Center, but it's not really just a spaceport. It's also a theme park. Because this is Florida, and like, everything's a theme park. So, We decide we're going to kill this time by going into a pavilion. And this pavilion is all about the history of the space shuttle program. Mm -hmm. So the beginning of this experience when you go into the pavilion is you walk up this long circular ramp. And then they herd you into this big auditorium. And they show you a movie. And the movie ends in a pretty spectacular way. So basically they're showing this sort of computer-generated paper airplane-like toy Uh, early model of the space shuttle before it got fully kind of fleshed out and it's, it's soaring over the earth and the music is swelling and the space plane comes to a stop and suddenly the lights go down and the screen rises up and right behind the space plane is the actual space shuttle Atlantis and the audience walks through the hole where the screen was and you're there nose to nose with Atlantis And I walk through, I'm looking at Atlantis, and I realize there are tears running down my cheeks. So I didn't really want to have to explain to Kieran and Lucy why their uncle was crying about the space shuttle. uh, Because their uncle is a technology journalist, and he writes about space. And this was a little weird. So I went off into a corner to collect myself. And I thought back to a day 30 years before that. I remembered working on a problem set in the basement of the science center in the computer lab. And a friend of mine from the college newspaper came over and said, hey, did you hear the news? The space shuttle blew up. And I said, he was the kind of guy who would like pull your leg about that kind of thing. So I said, no way, what are you talking about? He says, no, I'm really, I'm serious. So I I grabbed my bags. I ran across the yard. I slammed up the stairs. You know, I flung open my dorm room door. I flipped on the television. And there it was. Those images of the Challenger exploding 73 seconds after liftoff on January 28, 1986. And all you could see was this gi- just giant exploding ball of flaming fuel. And the solid rocket boosters kind of veering off in crazy directions like fireworks. And because the networks didn't have anything else to show, they kept repeating that image all day long. And it kind of got seared into my brain. And it wound up kind of changing my life. Because up to that point, I had been a super NASA fanboy. I had been a real space geek. I, when I was in fourth grade, I made this big poster of the Saturn V rocket that was like six feet tall. and I remember the teacher put it up on the classroom wall. And that was like the proudest day of my life. And now that I was in college, I was studying physics and astronomy. And I even had a job at the observatory working for an astronomer who studied X-ray stars. And he was helping to build a satellite that was going to go into space in the cargo bay of the space shuttle. But now that was all completely on hold because the space shuttle program was shut down and... They were trying to figure out how this happened. So it turned out that the cause of the accident was that some hot gas had escaped in between the joints uh, of one of the solid rocket boosters. These solid rocket boosters were built in segments. The joints were supposed to be kept sealed by these rubber O-rings. And on the morning of the launch, it was a, a super cold January day, the coldest day that NASA had ever tried to launch any rocket. And um, Morton Thiokol, the company that had made the solid rocket boosters, called up NASA and said, you know, we're not completely sure these O-rings are going to work when it's so cold. Um, But they got overruled, and the shuttle launched anyway, with results that we all saw on television. So seeing this accident investigation unfold, for me, was kind of a scales falling from my eyes kind of moment. I started to think more critically for the first time about science and about technology. And it occurred to me for the first time that there are all these risks that we never really account for until it's too late. There are all these chains of human decisions that seem logical and rational in the moment but lead to catastrophe. So I I basically decided to change my life. I quit my job at the observatory. Stopped. I, I dropped my major, physics and astronomy, and switched into the history of science. I decided to become a science journalist. I went to graduate school to study more history of science and history of technology so that I could be a better journalist. I wrote my whole dissertation about technological accidents, so I got pretty obsessed. But throughout that time, there was one disaster, two actually, that I could never bring myself to write about. And one of those was the Challenger, that terrible accident that killed seven astronauts. And the other was the Columbia, the other space shuttle that was destroyed. It was destroyed on re-entry in 2003, killing another seven astronauts. So I did go on to be a science journalist. And my day job basically is to help people think more critically about science and technology. And... Basically, back to the present, I'm nose-to-nose with Atlantis. And I'm struck by two things, first off. One is that this ship is a lot bigger than I expected. So um, I had never seen a space shuttle up close. And this thing, it turns out, it's like the size of a 737. It's kind of overwhelming. Second thing, it's beautiful. It's, it's this enormous machine. It's kind of weather-beaten. It's kind of pockmarked because it's been in space Uh, It's traveled more than 100 million miles in space. But still, um, it's got this grace to it. And there are actually three surviving space shuttles, and the other two are parked in hangars, and they're just kind of sitting on the ground. But at Kennedy, they've taken the Atlantis and put it up on these pillars, and they've kind of uh, canted it at an angle. And it's got dramatic lighting, and the cargo bay doors are open, and the satellites, uh, that, that, you know, that robotic arm that they use to repair satellites is kind of extended. And it looks like it's flying in space. So there's a lot of sort of theme park showbiz thinking that went into this whole presentation. But that wasn't why I was crying. I think the reason I was crying was that seeing this beautiful, graceful, gigantic spaceship in person sort of made the space program tangible for me in the first, for the first time. And basically, that brought me back to a place where I had to admit to myself that this technique I developed for detaching myself from the stories I was covering wasn't working anymore. I, you know, I wasn't able to kind of maintain that critical distance that a journalist is supposed to have toward his subject, So we left the pavilion. We went out to the launch viewing site. We waited for the Falcon uh, 9 rocket to launch. And they wound up scrubbing the launch uh, for a technical glitch. But they rescheduled it for the very next day. So we decided to pile back in the car and drive back to Kennedy and see if we could catch it the second time. This time we went to Cocoa Beach and walked out to the end of a long pier and uh, stood there in the wind and the waves and waited for the rocket to launch. And finally it did. And it just arced into space. Most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And a few seconds after the launch, the sound hit us. And we were like 10 miles away, but it's so loud that you can hear the roar, and you can kind of feel the roar in your chest. And I looked down at Kieran and Lucy, and I saw the amazement on their faces. And for the first time in a long time, I felt like I was seeing all of this through a child's eyes as well. Thanks.
1: That was Wade Roush. Wade is the host and producer of Soonish, a tech and culture podcast with the motto, "The future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us." He's also the co-founder of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective and a longtime science and technology journalist who trained in the history of science and technology at Harvard and MIT. He's worked for Science, MIT Technology Review, Xconomy, and other publications. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Mesa Salida, Emma Yarbrough, Ari Daniel, and Christine Gentry, with help from Katie Wu and Kelly Vinyl. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Highland Inn Ballroom and the Oberon Theater for hosting these shows, and to Science for giving me the cold medicine that enabled me to be just conscious enough to somehow record this podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody.